Hello and welcome to episode number two of the Road to Success podcast. My name is Maddie Lovell. Thank you so much for joining me today as I chat with businessman Paul Wright. Hey, what's up and welcome to the second episode of the Road to Success podcast. My name is Maddie Lovell and I really, really, hand on heart, appreciate you listening. If this is the first episode you've listened to, then welcome. If you have listened to any of our other episodes, then welcome back. Today I'm chatting with Paul Wright, who first and foremost is my father-in-law. He's my wife Sally's dad. He's been an incredible mentor to me in, in both business and life. Um, but we talk about his company, Harcourt's Real Estate. We talk about, I guess, over the last 30 years, how it's grown from a couple of offices to now being in multiple continents in 10 different countries and having over a 1,000 offices. It's a really incredible story. And look, if you are in business, if you are thinking about getting into business, if you want to start your own business, small, medium, or large, then this is relevant for you. There's some really cool takeaways. Get a pen out. We talk about the key fundamentals to business growth, regardless of what industry you're in. We talk about values-based business and why that is so important. We talk about why a thriving business should not necessarily be the key aim of a business plan. We go really in-depth into business planning, actually, and he talks about the process of business planning that has helped Harcourts grow over the last 30 years. So definitely have a pen in hand for that. We talk about wealth creation and we talk about, he gives an incredible description or definition of what success means to him as well. I'm excited. I hope you enjoy it. Again, thank you so much for checking out the podcast. You're amazing. Enjoy. Paul, right. Firstly, thank you so much for joining me. It's a pleasure to be here, Maddie. Look, this is probably my, or this is my second episode, so reality is if someone is listening, they probably know who I am, they probably then know who you are because of course my wife Sally is also your daughter. Sure is. But if someone is listening and they don't know who you are, can you give us a bit of a background maybe on your career, what you've done and, um, and what you're doing now? Sure, sure. Okay, so I trained as a land survey technician having left a wonderful year at Canterbury University where I went to lectures for six weeks studying accountancy and realised that wasn't me, so I enjoyed the rest of the university fraternity for the balance of the year and then uh, started, I guess, learning about uh, real estate from a surveyor's perspective. I was laid off after three years, three or four years, uh, which was a bit of a, a shock, I guess. I did a stint working for... Lands and Survey for three weeks, which was fascinating, seeing the ins and outs of working for a government department. And a guy had also been laid off and I put a tender in for some contour surveying work in North Canterbury. And we won this tender and we had no idea how we'd actually do the work, but we were given these massive photographs and you had to go up, survey the land and draw contours so that they could design for the irrigation scheme which was up there. Well that turned into probably a four, maybe five year mission where we did most of North Canterbury and then moved to South Canterbury and I surveyed from Rakaia to Ashburton from the main road to the sea. So we worked walked over hundreds of square kilometres of land and during that time my brother was going out with a lady who worked in real estate and she said you should come and meet Steve Collins. And uh, I said, I got, no, what are you talking about? Come and sell real estate? So you've got to be joking. And she said, no, no, you've got to meet him. So I went and met Steve and he said, you can start when you like. And there'd been a bit of a downturn in, in work. 
And so I turned up on his doorstep and in those days you could fill out one form and basically you're in real estate sales. And so I started, there was no desk, I ended up sitting on the end of his board table. And you know, you leap forward a few years, three years later, we were starting to grow Collins Real Estate. And uh, one Friday called me and said, Monday, you're taking the meeting. And that was probably the worst weekend of my life as I sweated about what I'd do in the, in the meeting on the Monday. And that then transcended. I took over that office, learned, you know, the ins and outs of running a real estate office, I guess, then took over running the South Island, just at a point where we'd expanded through New Zealand by acquisitions and joint ventures till we had about 90 company-owned offices. When we merged with Harcourts of Wellington, we changed our name to Harcourts. I think we had 10, maybe 11 offices. We got to 90 and then decided to franchise. And so that was about 1990 at that stage. You, you changed to Harcourt, sorry. So you were Collins Real Estate and you... We were Collins Real merged Estate. with Real Estate or Harcourts was already operating? Harcourts had been in Wellington since 1888. And so Steve flew to Wellington, met the owners. There was a synergy. We wanted to grow, he wanted to grow. So we took our signs down and changed to Harcourts Real Estate. That was quite a change for us because we thought we were, you know, the big dogs here in Christchurch and who was to you know, really chart at that stage where we're going. Steve had this vision, he wanted a, a big um, national company in New Zealand. And so, yeah, we grew that. And then 1990, we tried our first management buyout, tried to buy the business off National Bank, failed. They sold it to Tower Corporation. A few years later, we bought the business from Tower Corporation. At that stage, 90 of those managers had in mind that they wanted to define their own futures, a bit like us. So at the time we bought it, we franchised it. So we sold all the offices over the next couple of years to principally all the managers who were managing the offices and we were in the franchising business. And that, you know, there's a funny story that one of our own managers rang us and said he was taking on a franchise with this new company called Challenge. And we went over and spoke to him and he had the documentation and we twinked out Challenge, mm. typed in Harcourts and that's how we got into franchising. <laughs> it was a little bit document. more complicated than that, but you know, when the time's right, the time's right. It was right for us to buy the business and it was right for our then managers to make that transition. So since then, we've grown to be in around 10 countries. You know, we're approaching 1,000 offices. There's 10,000 people, you know, call Harcourts home. We sell in excess of $30 billion worth of property on behalf of people who entrust their properties and their businesses and their commercial buildings to us. Wow. So it went from sitting at the end of Steve's boardroom table to 10 countries. Over what span? 30 years, is it? Uh, yeah, we, we've been in Australia a bit over 20 years. So that was, you know, our first major move, our first you could call it strategic planning meeting. It was called to spend a little bit of time with our solicitor as Lakeside Home and Lake Rotoiti. I thought we were going there for water skiing and they said, no, boys, you've got to sit down and we've got to plan out what we do. And so in that one session, we determined that we would expand to Australia, start a mortgage business, get into the World Wide Web, which was just emerging then, uh, and take all of our software online. At that stage, we used to post out disks so people could update their computers. So, yeah, 22 years ago, we started in Australia. So that was really the forefront of it. 
And the decision to franchise to go from was that a decision based on giving you, you guys the ability to grow? It was more in response to the growth needs of our people. They wanted uh, to own their own businesses. They wanted to own their own businesses. We had obviously approaches to our good managers from other companies that were franchising. And we looked at the whole industry and thought, no, nah, this is the way to chart our future. This is what we should do. Let's get in the same boat together, make everybody responsible for their own success, and let's do it under this common brand called Harcourts. Well, and I mean, that obviously represents a lifetime of work. When you look at that from where it started to where it is today, are there some, some key fundamentals that you think allowed you to grow? I mean, it's relatively quickly. You've gone from one country to 10 in the space of 30 years and you've got tens of thousands of employees and offices all over the world. Are there some things that you look back now and say, hey, look, you know, doing that was really probably helped our growth? Yeah, I suppose it's sort of easy on reflection to be wise after the fact. You know, at the time... I think we had a great leader in Steve Collins who had a vision to, you know, grow a business nationally and to be number one in New Zealand. And so that kind of flavoured Mike and I and the others in our team who, um, you know, came up under that kind of um, mentorship, if you like. So then, okay, in reflection, you'd say, well, we dream big. We thought, well, how would we go from 100 to 1,000 offices? How could we get into 10 countries? So if there are any fundamentals, it's, you know, dream big. And then after that, you've got to have a plan. Mike and I had taken over the business. Steve retired out of it, sold down his shareholding to us. So we were, you know, really in the, in the hot seat. Uh, we were running around doing everything. And we decided to get in another mentor, I guess, to help us get us on track. And so we found Gilbert Anoka. Gilbert at the time was um, running mental management, mental training for a number of the New Zealand's leading sports teams. He'd done a little bit of work in the commercial field and we got him in and said, Bert, you know, can you help us get some structure, you know, get us on track? And he said, well, boys, show us your plan. And we said, sorry, Bert, what do you mean? He said, well, show us your plan. And we don't, we've got all these ideas. Um, And so Bert forced us to spend enough time to actually plan out Uh, what we wanted to achieve, what our short, medium-term goals were, what milestones we had to achieve, and then the tasks that we needed to get done to get those things done. So I'd say you've got to dream big, have a vision, and then you really got to have an ironclad plan if you're going to expand on that. Did you think it would get this big when you started off? Uh, No, probably not. We were very focused on Australia, and we wanted to put a lot of effort into growing that. We had an opportunity to go to South Africa. Gilbert and I flew to South Africa. There'd been a lot of development and people visiting this particular company who decided to join us over the previous 10 years. But, you know, it was interesting when the pupil's ready, the teacher will appear. We flew over, had a two-hour meeting with the then owners, directors, chairman of that business, And at the end of the two hours, we sort of knew that we were going to join forces. So we took a small shareholding in that, master licensed it. And so South Africa is now number two or three in that country, where Harcourts is. Uh, So we've taken opportunities where they've arrived. We've always had a philosophy of helping people. I remember having a young Chinese student come and knock on my door. Um, 
his name was Sean, and Sean was doing a degree at Lincoln University in business, and he decided to pick real estate. Franchising as his topic came in, and he was difficult to understand, to be honest, but, you know, good young guy, and because we've got a philosophy of always helping people, I said to our people, just give him all the information he wants on franchising, he's doing a paper, and three years later, he came back to my office, said, I have my degree, you know, I've, I've done it in real estate franchising, thanks for, I want Harcourts for China. And I said, sure, well, that's a, that's a pretty bold statement. I said, what you need is a very rich uncle. And away he went. And about a year later, he came, knocked on my door, out of the blue, said, I have rich uncle. <laughs> I said, you've got to be joking. So Mike and I flew to China and met Mr. Ding, a billionaire property developer, and he said, uh, see those buildings over there? And through an interpreter, and we looked at, as far as I could see all these commercial buildings, he had all of them, and he said, that is Hakuta, Hakuta. And that's how we started in China. So you never know when you invest in a young student or when you go knocking on doors in Australia to convert people where the opportunities will come from. It's just a philosophy of if you put it out there, dream big, help others, you know, it's amazing the dividends that, you know, come to pass. Yeah, I think there's actually a positive ROI of, you know, karma is a real thing. Yeah. yeah, yeah, doing the right thing, and which aligns, I know, with your values. You've talked about helping people. Um, one, I've had a bit of insight into Harcourts, and um, one thing that stands out for me is the values. Can you maybe explain the values and and maybe why and how they've helped guide Harcourts? Yeah, well, it's another kind of one of those stories. We, we in growing a great business, we've also learned that you know you have to have great people, and so we've spent a lifetime trying to recruit really good people to come on our bus, join our team. Uh, sometimes we haven't known exactly where they're going to be, but when you come across talent, we try to get them into our group and then find the right role for them. Part of having a great team and in those very, very early days as we grew quickly, there was no training material. Steve had a, a real drive and desire to, to make sure that all of us were well-trained. And so we licensed training programs out of the States and we ran them for everybody in the organisation. We we called it a drench. So we all sang off the same song sheet. We all had the same sales management programs and we could all almost speak them as rote. And that was foundational. And so, you know, you have your good people, uh, train them well, and then develop a culture. And part of the cultural development, and I'll talk about recognition, et cetera, in a minute, but part of building a great culture is having great values. And in that training arena, we used to travel a lot to the States and go to every conference, real estate conference, another conference that we could just to learn what, you know, the best were doing, what others were doing. And we bring that back and introduce it into our own group. We're in Miami, Mike and I and Gilbert, and we'd been to a conference and um, we had a debrief. So you can imagine being in Miami, we're in this nice hotel, we're looking out on the beach and Gilbert closes the curtains and he says, boys, we're not leaving till we've defined our values. I'm like, Gilbert, you've got to be joking, mate. What are you doing? We're in Miami. We don't have to sit here and do our values. There's a cocktail bar with our name on it. Exactly. Yeah. And he, he said, no, boys, we're not leaving till we've... So it took a day and um, we came up with four values. People first, do the right thing, be courageous and fun and laughter. They sort of can roll off the tongue, but over the last 
maybe 15 to 20 years. They've kind of defined our culture, defined the way we make our decisions. You know, some of the tougher decisions, we've had to run it through the filter of those values. And if we've made poor decisions or we've been performing in a way that our own people uh, have been uncomfortable with, they've quoted those values back to Mike and I and our leadership team and said, well, what part of those values is, is that decision you've just made? And so it's become a really defining part of Harcourts and the way we look after our clients, look after our customers, look after our people. You know, if you run it through the that people first, well, that makes sense. Be courageous. You know, sometimes you have to be courageous in your decisions and, and what you do. Doing the right thing. I mean, it's, you know, in a commission-only business, it's hard to do the right thing all the time, but you've asked the undone if you don't do the right thing. So that's an important one. And fun and laughter, a sense of celebration and recognition is the all that a sales business runs on. And so um, we've made an art form of recognition, celebration, having fun and laughter. You know, one of our top business owners says, I'm not here for a long time, I'm here for a good time. And and to a degree, that sort of flavours Harcourts in a, in a sales business. You know, people, we have an incredible turnover in the real estate industry. Commission selling's challenging. So while we've got people with us, we want to train them well, develop them well, instill our values and uh, ensure that they have a fun and memorable time with us. Because if they're infected in that way, that's how they relate with their clients. Clients have a better experience. It becomes more memorable. Hopefully they'll recommend us and return to us, um, you know, for the time we've got them. Absolutely. And do you think that, I mean, when you're, you know, you're a multinational company, I guess having values is a great way to make sure everyone's behaving in a way that aligns with what's important to the, the key fundamentals of the organisation. Do you think values are important in a small business as well? Oh, yes. Yeah. I mean, it, leadership's the key. Um, if the leader is not living proper values, everybody knows it. People will stay as long as it takes till they find a better environment or job. But if you want to grow a business, it doesn't matter what size it is, leading from the front and living your values is fundamental. All right. Could you maybe give us an example of a, of a process that if someone is listening and they've got a small business and they say, all right, I want to have some sort of values behind what we do. Is there, uh, you know, I've actually been through the business planning process um, and you do like a desired reputation questionnaire sort of thing at the, at the start. Would you maybe be able to explain that? And that's, does, that, does that relate to the values? Yeah, well, there's, there's some important parts of you know, I mentioned planning before, developing a business plan. We tend to do a navigational check where we run the stethoscope over our business and we, you know, ask three, what sings, what hums and what clunks. And so you ask yourself what has gone well in the year and part of that is then doing a reflection on your own reputation and brand and it's as simple as writing a list of six to eight statements that if I asked your client, your customer, one of your workmates, somebody who supplies you, your lawyer, your accountant, your brother, you know, one of your mates to describe you. Yes, in the business sense, but also as a person, if you had to write six to eight words or statements down of how you'd want them to describe you, that can be quite defining. So what we do is we just say that, okay, write six to eight words or statements down, 
Now pick four of them. If you could only use four of those to describe you, which four would you describe or which four would you choose? And then out of those four, which one, if there was only one word or phrase that someone could use to describe you, which one would it be? And then we take that one and say, well, that's the number one most important brand or reputation statement and the other three of the four sort of underpin it. And that's a good way of starting to define you know, how you want to be seen, what it is that is important about you and your business. And, and people come up with the common ones, you know, they want integrity and honesty. And But, you know, there's more practical ones as well. You know, you know, I reply every day, I'm speedy, I'm honest, I, I work hard. It's really you defining what you want, how you want to be seen in that brand environment. Yeah, it's a good exercise and, and we've enjoyed it. And if anyone is listening that does have a small business, I really would encourage um, you to do that exercise um, regardless of the size of your business. You talked a bit about business planning. You talked about the nav check. What are some other fundamentals to a good business plan, regardless of size? Because I think it doesn't matter whether it's, you know, it's one person or it's a, an international organisation. Everyone, as you've alluded to, needs a plan. What are some of the key things that every business plan should have? Because there's probably lots of different templates, but do you think there's some key things that should be oh, well, on each one? What we've learned over the years that if you can't put it on one page, can't be done. So I've been through business planning processes over the years where we've developed a treatise, a book of all of our goals and dreams and all of the bits and pieces that all the financial analysis, all of the statements, all of the goals and tasks, all, all of that kind of stuff, the SWOT analysis, the whole 10 yards. And what I found three months after it's done, it's in the bottom drawer. So Gilbert said to us, if you can put it on one page, and admittedly ours is an A3 page, but that A3 page is quite simple. It's You can photocopy and put it in your diary. You can photograph it and stick it in your phone, or you can leave it on the wall of your office. And in pure terms, it does sum up the key aspirations for the business or for yourself, your dreams, your big, hairy, audacious goals, some of your longer-term ones. We tend to focus on what three skills that you want to develop or work on that year that will make a difference to uh, your success, your personal development. We break the year down, look for our annual goals, obviously performance, profit, turnover, memberships, whatever it is is a driving factor in your business, we list them out and put them there. But we also include the personal stuff. You know, are there some personal goals? What holidays do you want to take? You know, where do you want to visit? What things are important to you, your family, in the year ahead? Do you want to buy an investment? You know, is it time to tidy up your wills or your personal insurances or other bits and pieces and make sure that in a holistic sense you're in, a, in good shape? And then we break it down to three months. What are you going to do in the next quarter in those key areas? Not necessarily all of them, but what things are you going to achieve in the quarter ahead? We have a couple of boxes, one that has opportunities, one has threats or restrainers. So just psychologically, if there's some opportunities that you've kind of seen, but they're not necessary, if they dropped into your lap, would make a big difference to your business. We put them in the plan and they just sit there. You might take an action on them, you might not but they can flavour you know, your work and your focus. Restrainers are things that will hold you back or derail you in your business. Typically, people talk about the economy, but it's more likely things that you don't do, your own procrastination. Somebody is in your life who's you know, driving you crazy, you need to sort. You know, Those are all threats and restrainers common that I've seen over the years. And then we have a clear task list. So out of those quarter targets, we say, well, 
what tasks need to be done in a specific time frame with a specific responsibility. And it's not about just filling in the page, it's about completing the page. So early on, we found we're putting lots and lots of tasks and ticking them all off. Um, but over time, you get that down to the tasks that are essential to drive your business. And every three months, we go through that task list, was it done, yes or no? And when you're with Gilbert, it's either yes or no, boys. Well, yeah, but we've started it. He said, no, no, is it yes or no? So you get a zero or one, adds up the score. So if you've got, say, 15 tasks and you get 10 of them done, you've got a 75%. If you get half them done, you're at 50%. And he's always made the point, and we've noticed that if you're an 80% plus task completion, it's almost like night follows day, your quarter task and your annual goals all get achieved. And that's accountability really, isn't it? It is accountability, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's pure accountability. Because, you know, we've all got great dreams and goals, but at the end of the day, it's a discipline to make sure that the tasks get done when you say they'll get done that make a difference. And the other addition that we put into the business planning process is kind of the dollar productive habits or behaviours that if you do, you know, it can be described as the 20 mile march, but every day or every week, there are some key things we all know that if we do them religiously, they drive 80% of the success of our business. What's and an example of that? Of a dollar well, behavior? you know, in sales, as an example, if you had, I will call 10 people before 10, contact 10 people before 10 a.m. every working day, that's 50 or 60 calls a week, 300 plus calls a year. Will that make a difference to your business? Of course it will. Similarly, in a thankless world, some people say, well, I will write a thank you card every day, five thank you cards a week, 250 thank you cards a year. Do you think it'll change your business? Of course it will. So whatever it is for you, they're just examples, but there are some productive behaviours that we all know that if we do religiously, will drive our success. And if you do those first, whether it's diarying time, you know, to make sure those things get done or having someone hold you accountable. The reason that people hire a coach at a gym and then change their shape is because of the accountability. So if you want to be more productive in your business, get someone to hold you accountable. The business plan is just another form that holds you accountable. Mm -hmm. I've listened to Bob Wolf talk, who's... Um pretty incredible guy, one of your agents in the States, and I've heard him talk about dollar productive behavior, and he says I only do four things. I can't remember off the top of it. It's, it's list, sell, negotiate, and prospect. prospect. And he's like, yeah. he's like, I don't even wash my car because yep. it's not dollar productive for yeah. me. Yeah. I think that's probably a good thing for people to know because particularly in a small business, you can get really caught up with the small things. You can be busy being busy. And I think what's what, one of the things I've really learned from the process that we've been through is that understanding what is dollar productive for your business. And although there might be something bright that's trying to grab your attention from you, it's not necessarily dollar productive. And just even writing down those behaviours for you and your business is a really, really helpful process. Yeah, it is fundamental. It is fundamental. You know, we all talk fundamentals. I think if, if you reflect on what does drive success, that vision, having a sense of, you know, where you see yourself in the future, writing the goals down. I remember uh, when I was in my early 20s, I'd just taken over running the office. I had an SMI salesman come to see me and he wanted to sell me this. What's SMI? Uh, Success Motivation Institute. Oh, yeah. So it's out of the States. You got two folders and 24 
audio tapes. If you wouldn't even know what an audio tape was, but we used to have cassette players in our cars. And, and so you listened to a tape, filled out the book. Well, the first 20 to 30 pages of this SMI book uh, was all about writing your dreams down in every area of life, your family, your, your fitness, your health, what you want to do in education, where you want to visit, things you want to have, things you want to do, performances, education, just everything. It took two or three weeks just to fill in this first thing. And you do all this, you know, you fill it all in as the part of the programme because it was a reasonably expensive one. And then years later, 20 years later, I had a uh, one of our business owner managers come to visit me and he was looking to appoint a general manager. And I could see that he was that person, but he couldn't see it. And I said to him, what, what, are, your, what are your goals? He said, oh, I've got all these great goals. You know, I've got all these things. I said, well, can I see them? He said, oh, no, they're all in my head. You know, I've got... I said, well, I'll tell you what, let's meet on Monday, which was three or four days hence, and you have write them all down and then get back together. And in the short term, I got the SMI book, sort of blew the dust off it, opened it, hadn't really looked at it for years and years, all these dreams of a young man, like I was driving Chrysler Avenger and I wanted a new BMW and I wanted to fly a helicopter and drive a race car and travel to Europe and have a great family and speak in public and like absolute fantasies they were, you know, when I was writing them down. And you leap ahead 20, 30 years hence, every single one of them come to pass. So there is power in dreaming, there's power in writing these dreams and goals down and where was Not that necessarily believing any of them will come to pass. Yeah. And that guy ended up... He did. Yeah. He did. He, he wrote them down. He became the general manager. He's grown a great business. And that's part of, you know, the, the joy and the, the amazement of this business is that talented people can achieve amazing things. Yeah. And what I liked is that you talked a bit about the holistic approach to a business plan and how it should include family goals, holiday goals, um, you know, if it's flying a helicopter or racing a car, whatever it is. And that's probably one thing that I've personally really learned from you. I don't know if it's something you've directly taught me, but I've definitely picked it up by proxy that the the goal is actually not to have a thriving business. The goal is to live a magnificent life. And I think maybe when people are really driven to be successful, particularly in business, sometimes they can miss that. And you can be so focused on KPIs, on profit margins, on sales, that you kind of lose sight of the things that are most important. And is that something, I guess my question is, have you been intentional about work-life balance over your career? Have you always, when you've talked about your dreams and goals, but is there something... Because you know, I look at you now and you've got a, a fantastic network, you're really intentional about time with family and friends, you've obviously been successful in business as well. Was that something that was intentional? I think it was, uh, again, people come into your life when you kind of, as people say, reach out to the universe when the pupils ready, teach all the people. Dr. Fred Gross, who actually lives here in Christchurch, he came into Harcourts at a time when we were looking to develop or have a program for our top performing people. And he taught us a number of things. He'd done a PhD, he was a rabbi, um, he was a philosopher, psychologist, teacher, trainer, and he'd been working, I think, in the insurance industry. And we stumbled across him, as you do, and then met with him and, and brought him into our company. And he started teaching us a kind of a different philosophy about designing a magnificent life. When he was a student at University of New York, 
he made his thesis on the meaning of life and to research and get information. He went around and talked to people between the ages, I think of, say, 60 and 100 years old. And he said, in his interview, he said, looking back on your life, what is it that you remember? What is it that gave you meaning? What is it that gave you joy? And then he wrote all the things down that people reflected on, oh, graduating from university, my becoming number one salesperson, buying this car, climbing Mount Kilimanjaro, you know, all the things that people would ever dream of. And he categorised them into 10s, 25s, 50s and 100s. So a 10 could be something like having a coffee with a friend, going to the gym, having a massage, taking your dog for a walk. A 25 could be something like a weekend away or buying a new car or taking a holiday to Fiji. A 50 could be, you know, a week in France or, again, climbing the Mount Kilimanjaro or biking up Mount Von Two. And a 100 could be number one salesperson in New Zealand, <clears throat> owning your own business, a university degree late in life. It could be three months living in France tax-free, you know, whatever yeah. it is that he defined. And he said, if that's what people looking back say has created a magnificent life, why wouldn't you design 10s, 25s, 50s and 100s into your life going forward so you've actually something, you've got a, uh, something to look forward to that actually pulls you into a magnificent life. And that's where this designing a magnificent life has come from. So not sure whether I'm answering questions specifically, but I've made a practice of designing 10s, 25s, 50s and 100s. And so I have things to look forward to in the next one, two or three years. I have things in my diary for the week ahead that I know is going to be fun, whether it's a game of tennis with the boys on a Monday or a Monday lunch or a massage or something like that. I have the 25s, which are those weekends away. It might be in Brunner going for a dive with some friends. I have the 50s, which are the family trip away for a week. And the 100s is, is maybe the trip to bike up Mount Vaughan too. So I've got those things and I've always had those things. And that's given, I guess, some balance. Dr. Fred taught us that work funds your life, work is not your life. Work funds your life. So he taught us early, when you're at work, work. So when I'm at work, I really work. I'm not distracted, I get the jobs done, the dollar productive jobs done that I know need doing. And then when I leave work, if I'm going home, then I change channel and I'm in my family mode. So. In the early days when I had young kids, I would be home for dinner, you know, and I would have dinner with the family and then I'd do whatever work I had to. I made a conscious decision to change channels so I didn't take the phone call. I mean, we were barely, and we had the first cell phones that we ever invented, you know, as soon as they came out because we were very, you know, tech savvy and very, you know, we just wanted the, the latest in anything. Salesman. Always have. Yeah. yeah, salesman. We wanted it. Love toys, wanted the latest ones. But I made a habit of actually leaving the phone in the car and then spending the time with the family so you were engaged. Because I used an annual planner, I did my best to make sure that important events for the family were actually in there, whether it was the school assembly or the odd, you know, I'm not a saint. I didn't go away. I used to spend all my life you know, going to school camp, but there were events more often than not that I did get to because I made a plan to, to do it. And so 
I don't actually believe in quality time. I think that's a crock. There's only quantity time, and if you've got quantity time, out of that drops some quality time. So if you're not with your family, your friends, your kids, your mates, then don't expect great relationships just because you spend a, you know, a solid day with one of them doesn't happen. Yeah. And yes, I maintain my networks. You know, I, I make a habit of calling people out of the blue. If someone's name, image or whatever pops into my head, I immediately ring them and just say g'day. And so I, be, I spend a lifetime doing that. I plan my day and my time to make sure that connection with friends, family and, is in there. And as I said, when I'm at work, I try to get every dollar productive thing done and I don't tend to get distracted. So, you know, if I'm planning something important, then I focus on that and I don't answer the phone and I don't respond to texts and I don't respond to emails and I don't check my Facebook and I've got all of them. I've got everything. So it takes discipline, but that's how I've managed to structure my way through that. When at work, work. When at home, be at home. Yeah. That's good advice. Yeah, and when, when you're with your mates, be with your mates. You know, if you're on a golf course thinking about work, you should walk off the golf course and go to work. And if you're at work thinking about being on the golf course, get out of work and go and play golf. It's, it's just counterproductive. You know, when at work, be dollar productive. Yeah. Change channel, get it done. You know, Dr. Fred used to say we're productive about eight hours a week. If you think when you everything you achieve, yeah. you actually get done, is done in about an hour a day and the rest yeah. is just stuff. And if you ever want to test, just keep a diary for about three days of every six minutes that you spend during the day yeah. and, you know, you'll be shocked. That's the Pareto principle, really, isn't it? 80-20, it is. 20% it is. of your yeah. time, you get 80% of your results. Yeah, I actually heard someone talk about they actually physically had a switch, so they would drive home from work, and he said, when I pressed my garage door opener, that was the switch in my head that it was now home time and it was time to be with his family. And just that single, having that, that one physical touch for him mentally was able to change his state, I guess, which is a cool way to do it. Well, social media is just so seductive. Well, Matty would know better than most. He gave me an app to download to put on my phone, which tracks how much time you spend on it, and it was just continuously read. So I did what anybody else would do, and I took the app off my phone. (laughs) (laughs) It is good, but I think you're right. You've just got to be intentional about what it is that you're doing and when you are there to be present, because I think that's the worst thing is when you're half pregnant everywhere. You're not enjoying golf and you're not enjoying work because you're not getting either done properly. Yeah, and it's a hard practice, and especially in real estate where you are at the beck and call of texts and emails and client calls, but you can navigate your way around it. I've learnt over the years that email is important to the person who sends it. And so if you schedule or structure your emails so you check them all at once or have somebody go through them for you if you can afford a PA, then that leaves you focused to do dollar productive stuff. In my experience, dollar productive is when you're face-to-face or speaking with someone who can say yes. And I think that goes across every small business, every big business. If you're cleaning the lunchroom or you're doing the paperwork or you're doing the filing and not being engaged in dollar productive, then you're not being successful. Yeah, I would agree. Let's say that, I mean, this is, I guess I am, I'm a small to medium business owner and I'm looking to grow and expand my business. But when you're in a small business and you are the owner, often the business is really dependent on you as the owner. 
what are some of the ways in your mind that you think that process can be managed? If someone wants to scale the business and they are doing those things that aren't dollar productive, you know, like they own the business but they are doing the filing, they are cleaning the lunchroom, what are some of the ways that they can take the first steps to make sure their time is used well and that they can make the running of the business less dependent on them so they can focus on the growth? No matter the size of the business, I think it starts with the leader. So Sunday night, Monday morning, you've got to plan out your week of what the key tasks that need to get done. If you want to grow a business or get some freedom to enjoy, you know, you may have a small successful business and be quite profitable and doing quite well, but, you know, you're working eight hours a week, you don't see your family, you don't get any holidays, but you are making money and driving a nice car. And to everybody else looking at it, they say, wow, Matt, he's successful. Look, he's got the new car, he's got a nice house. But on the other side of the fence, Maddie's working 80 hours a week, he's got no time with his family. In fact, he's just broken up, the kids hate him, um, there's no holidays, but it all looks good. But being good is about the discipline of knowing that you can delegate. To every small business owner, I'd say recruit, recruit, recruit. You've got to have talent in your business that you can delegate tasks to. I think we've always wanted to hire for a price and ended up paying much more to buy talent. Where we've hired good talent, they've more than justified the increase in what we thought we could afford. We've always paid more than we thought we could afford for really good people and they've paid for themselves. Where we've bought at the market and got mediocre, we've got mediocre to poor results and it's always cost us more. So even in a small business, hiring someone you think you can't afford those people will help pay for themselves. They will see savings. They will generate business. They will create efficiencies that you don't see. They'll free you up to be more focused where you should be spending your time, which is doing the things dollar productive for you and the business, spending the time with your family and kids and your mates and things that if I ask you to write the things down you say they're important, everyone writes, oh, my family, my friends, and no one spends any time there. So planning, setting your goals, you know, high talent and realise that you're better off to pay more for, for talent than buy mediocre. Yeah. And delegations can be hard sometimes when you are the business to sort of, it sounds easy to, oh, I'll just do less and someone else will do more. But I guess when you're a small business owner, sometimes you're so predictive because that is you and your livelihood is so wrapped up in it. And we all get wrapped up in this. If I train this person up, they'll leave me and start a business and, you know, they'll take all my clients or half my clients. I've learned over the years you've got to let go of that. Everybody is leaving. It's just a matter of when. You left, you know, if you're in the business, I bet you work for somebody and you left them and you've started your own business and now you're worried about hiring someone who's going to do exactly the same thing. Like all those fears, I think you've got to practice 20 seconds of courage every day. Let go of that fear. Everybody's replaceable, including you. Hire talent and recognise that they will leave, but if they do well, work well, grow your business, you'll make profit on the way through. And if they leave with you know, good grace, you've got to pat them on the back and say, well, while you're with me, it's fantastic. I'm disappointed you're going. I genuinely wish you every success in what you're doing because that's how the world goes. They will refer business and if they uh, change their mind, they can come back. But too often I've seen people get bitter and acrimonious when someone leaves is ridiculous, yeah. you know. 
there's always talent out there to hire. So the, the sooner you let go of that fear, there's a certain amount of freedom, there's a certain amount of growth that you've got to go through, there's a certain amount of courage required, but just do it. I finished Richard Branson's book not long ago, and one of his philosophies was um, train people well enough so they can leave, but treat them so they won't. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's great quite statement. Quite an interesting yeah, philosophy. Yeah. Another thing that I, I've, I've come to sort of learn off you, I guess, is the idea of constant improvement. And respectfully, I say at your age, you know, you're probably not at a stage in your career where you need to be picking up new things and learning new habits and reading books and going to courses. But that's exactly what I see. You know, I read a book and we talk about it, or you've read a book, or, and I see you're watching videos and at a seminar, you're taking more notes than anyone. Has that sort of been a philosophy throughout your life, or is that something you've picked up? Uh, it's been a habit. I have uh, diaries, books, notes from conferences, uh, people I've met, listened to, spoken about. Steve Collins teased me on a number of occasions. He said, do you ever reread those books? He said, you should just get them all and put them into one book, you know. I think success is a habit and learning from others. I, you know, success to me leaves clues. I went to a Tony Robbins Awaken the Giant within conference in Sydney where the, he walked on stage, you know, magnificent seven-foot guy with the most amazing orator I think I've ever listened to. And um, he levitated the audience for three hours and then just talking about motivation and positive expectation and and a whole heap of um, Tony Robbins kind of um, motivation. And then at 11pm, I think it was, we all walked outside and they had this huge fire going with big wooden fire, probably the size of, say, four houses, all on fire. You couldn't get within 100 metres of it. And at 3am, we were all scheduled to do a fire walk. So when you went out and you listened to all the motivational stuff, oh, yeah, that was interesting. When you went out and saw the fire and thought, jeepers, in three hours I'm going to be, or four hours I'm going to be walking through hot coals, because that was part of the induction for the course. When you went back inside, you were far more focused. So I remember we learnt this mantra, cool moss, cool moss, cool moss. And at 3am, after all of the practice and meditation, and I guess you maybe went into trance, I don't even know how it worked, we all lined up and there was probably a, a walkway of maybe four metres and all these burning hot coals and you went into your own state and you said these words, cool moss, cool moss, and you walked through these burning hot coals, came out the other side. I can even imagine now brushing your feet off because that's what you were told to do because some of the coals stick to your feet and out the other side, not a burn. How did you do that? No idea. I, I can't even believe it. I actually did it. If I hadn't experienced, I wouldn't have believed it was possible. Yeah. That's the kind of the reason that that's an extreme example, but, you know, you go to courses, you listen to people who are more successful than you and there are some gems that you pick up that you can put into your own business, your own life, your own family, your own expectations that literally do change your life. You know, he taught us that if you want to be a world-class polo player, go to South America, find the best polo player and spend three months with them and guess what will happen? Your polo will improve. So over my business career, we have sought out the best people in all aspects of sales and marketing and, and we've gone to visit them and we've copied them and invited them to conferences and had them speak and present because success leaves clues. And if somebody 
you know, is bowed over and walks and talks and does something and you copy them, guess what? Your success will improve. And that's what we've done. Copy the best, develop those habits, just look what happens, you know, the success leaves clues. Yeah, I think that's a great insight and probably a lesson from everyone because unless you're trying to walk on Mars, someone's probably done what you're trying to do before, no matter what you're trying to do, whether you're in a retail business or a sales industry or any role, there's probably someone that is doing what you're trying to do better. And yeah, you... and, and the best always share. There hasn't been one successful person that I've asked. I've shadowed people. You know, I've been – You people would say, oh, but you're general manager of New Zealand. Why would you go and shadow the guys running NZI? I said, because I think he's – onto it. I think he's doing a great thing. So, you know, I rang him up, said, Would, could I come and shadow you? He said, what? Yeah, would I just follow you around for a day and see what you do? Well, of course, he said yes, and I followed him around for a day, and it was the most productive day he ever had because he made sure that <laughs> the day was incredible. Yeah. Now, that's happened to me all over the world. You ring people, if they're really successful, they always say yes. It's the unsuccessful people who have got some fear say no. Successful people are not threatened by others copying them. You know, they're just too focused on their own success, their own things. So if people ring us and want to come and visit us, we open the doors. It's a great philosophy. I want to touch a little bit on wealth creation. Now, I know you're obviously big on property investment and you've actually got quite a cool story, which I've heard you share a couple of times. Yeah. Can you maybe share that now and maybe explain a little bit why Property is such a great way to create long-term wealth. Yeah, well, wealth creation, I, I guess it varies for different people, but I think everyone understands that passive income, which is income that pours into your bank account regardless of you working or not, is quite a nice aspiration, you know, like isn't <laughs> yeah, it? Yeah, across the board. And so fun. people say, oh, yeah, that's great. You know, I've got school fees, I've got this, I've got that. Um, but what I've seen over the years is no matter what the performance or income of most of our people, at the end of the month, they have the same amount of disposable income. So when I started, I drove a Chrysler Avenger, I bought a secondhand suit and, you know, away I went. And then as I became more successful, I had a nicer car and nicer suits and nicer shirts and nicer holidays. But the net net was about the same because I just spent as I increased my income. Until I went to a course and um, learnt, you know, what internal return and what residential real estate investment was really about. You know, the good story, I guess, to, to underpin this is my first sale, 19 Flockton Street, house and two flats in St Albans, in Christchurch. Steve Collins gave me the listing. I sold it, $19,750. So I've tracked that little house over the years and about every six or seven years, it's doubled in value. So $20,000 then, it's probably about seven or 800000 now. And I just wish, looking back, that I'd bought every house I sold in that first year. So you, you go back 30 years of a career, if I'd bought every house I sold in the first year, I would have flown to this meeting in a private jet from France. So if you're in your 20s and you say how do I get enough passive income so I don't actually have to work in my 40s, I would say buy four investment properties. And there's a rough rule of thumb. If you say the average return in New Zealand real estate, Australia, America, South Africa, it's all the same, say 5%, and you're comfortable living on, say, $100,000 as a figure, 
then you need $2 million worth of property freehold by the time you decide that you want this passive income. So if you buy four houses in your 20s and they're paid off by the time you're in your 40s, then the net income from those four houses, say four houses at 500 is 2 mil, whatever the value is, they'll generate the same disposable income in that period of time. Yeah. The hardest thing is just making the decision to buy property, especially an investment. Now, New Zealand has some tax advantages and bits and pieces which make it more attractive. The leverage from the banks, tougher as it is at the moment, is still great. You know, try buying some gold or some shares, you know, with a 80% leverage. It's not going to happen. Dr. Dolph de Roos wrote an interesting book I read on residential investment in New Zealand. He was a young electrical engineering student who decided to get into buying residential real estate. And he's made an art form of that over his career. But he, he made the statement that the buy of the decade is in the paper, although it's now online, every day. The buy of the decade. So people say, what a bargain. How did you pick that up? It's because you've been in the real estate investment market enough to recognise a bargain when it You've been around every auction. You study every property in the newspaper. You look outside of your current sphere till you find the bargain of the century and you buy it and then you rent it, you pay it off and then buy another one and another one and another one. And I guarantee you in 10 to 20 years, you'll have the passive income so you can choose whether you work or not. It might sound a bit simple, but the hardest thing is just making the decision to buy an investment. Just one. Start off. And then you say, well, I haven't got a deposit. Then make the decision to buy the investment and make a second to save the deposit. Yeah. What you said there is even if you're not in a position to buy a property right now, if you're not going to be in a position for a year, if you spend the next 12 months looking at the market every day, looking at your app, looking at the paper, whatever it is, in 12 months' time when it does come, when you are in a position to buy a house, you've got a really good understanding of the market and you can find that deal. Yeah. If you've got no money right now, and you find a property that for whatever circumstances the owner wants out, and if they take, if they took a 40% discount to market, so a $600,000 property, suddenly 400000 every single one of your mates would know it was a raging bargain. You could go around your mates, raise the deposit and say, look, I'll put it all together, let's all share in it, and then we'll sell it on. There are ways and means to do it once you find the bargain. You don't know the bargain until you put the time in and yep. no one will put the time in. Put that's, the time that's in, the, find the deal. Yeah, that's yeah. the thing. And I actually heard an interesting statement, I guess it was, about someone who said that you shouldn't hand debt down to your children. And But I think about this now, and if you'd bought that house for $19,000 back in eighty. Six, seven? About 83. 83. If you'd bought that house for $19,000 and you'd paid nothing but the interest off for the entire time and you left the principal as it was, you would now have a $19,000 mortgage on a half a million dollar property. Correct. Yeah. And that's how it works. Yeah. And and it's hard to think that the houses that are half a million now will be a million in five, 10 or 20 years, but... You know, history leaves a few clues. If you go back 100 years, one of the things that increased every year has been real estate. Indeed. What are you most proud of? I've got a couple of quick fire questions to end with. What are you most proud of when you look back? 
I suppose achieving the goals that I've set, you know, over the years, that brings some some pride. Uh, growing, you know, the business the way we have, you know, I'm proud of that. Still being married, having three daughters, two grandchildren, one on the way, you know, that's something to be really proud of. Having a, a grandchild even under my own roof at the moment is is an amazing experience. But to see, you know, your own children develop and and forge their own way is is a great source of pride. Mike and I started the Harcourts Foundation, and that's given away, I don't know, five or six million to community groups since we started it. And that's one of those things we actually went on a excursion, a trip to the States, stumbled across a real estate company that had a foundation, and we thought, well, oh, that's a good idea, and we started it. Recently, well, six, seven years ago after the earthquakes, we started the Inspire Foundation here in Christchurch. And that's something that our team's really proud of because we've got 250 grantees that we've financially supported and we've been trying to teach them some hard-nosed business skills so that they can fund their future and develop into future leaders and, and better people. I think the, the proudest moment you have is when you help somebody else be successful. You know, I've had young people come that I've mentored who have taken action on the suggestions we've made and away they go, you know, in personal sense, sometimes it's in a financial sense, sometimes in a business sense. But the biggest buzz you really ever get is from helping somebody else be successful. You know, I've got mates who have who've got all the toys in the world. They don't have a lot of contentment. They don't have a lot of um, feeling of success because they're always after the next toy. I guess one of the lessons I've learned is to to be happy with what I've got to be happy with the family I've got, to be happy with and content with where I'm at. Uh, you know, I've got a burning desire for the Inspire Foundation Harcourts to keep growing, but, you know, it's all in perspective. There's a number of, I suppose, measures, your own health, the fact that you've got a group of friends that, you know, depend on you or keen to spend time in your company. You know, I like going to the rugby matches. I like going to the Galapagos and diving. You know, I've, you know, achieved a few things that, that give me a buzz, but helping others be successful is probably the the defining one. Yeah. Actually, I heard Mike, your business partner, he, um, I heard him say once that um, help as many people become successful as you can and you too will become unusually successful. I thought that was quite a nice, yeah. nice statement. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's the only way. And, and people think in small businesses it's all down to them. And, you know, if you're a plumber, an electrician or whatever business, small business you're in, you can always do better. You know, you can always grow your business. You can always help others. If you have a mindset, you have a plan, you have a vision. And sometimes it's as, as simple as taking some time out of your business, find a mentor who will just sit you down and in three hours define your future and then with any luck, they'll meet with you in three months and just ask you how you got on. Your life will change. Yeah. When you said what you're most proud of, I guess you sort of alluded to it, but I wonder, have you thought about what success is for you? Like have you, you talk about what you're most proud of and I guess that sort of gives you some indication, but have you ever thought about it before or defined it, what success looks like for you? I guess success is typically it's it comes down to you know, the measures, whether they're assets or, you know, successful businesses, you know, they're, they're the common measures of success. But I think, you know, the true measure of success is whether your kids talk to you, 
whether they're prepared to come around and visit you and spend some time in your company, you know, whether they'll trust you with their grandkids, whether your mates will ring you up and invite you out, you know, whether they come around when they're in need or trouble. You know, I think that's a true measure of success when people, it's not, you know, what they say, it's not what you have, it's not what the bank account is. It's, you know, who loves you, who spends time with you, you know, who enjoys your company. Bob Wolf said meaning relationship, meaningful relationships trump everything. That's yeah, probably. yeah, meaningful relationships trump everything. They do, yeah. To end with, what are you obsessed with right now? And obviously I know you've got a brand new <laughs> grandchild or I don't want to say let's leave her to the side, but I, I, I'm just looking to understand where your attention is. You know, what's what's got your attention? What lights you up? What do you think about before you go to sleep? It might be, it could be anything. It might be a TV show or a, an app or a, um, a, a new wine or a restaurant, like anything. What's sort of on your mind at the moment? Okay, so on my mind at the moment in the Inspire Foundation space is we did a strategic review about two months ago we invited Matty and we had Hannah Hudson, who's a world um, problem-solving champion in, just to keep us honest and to help us, I guess, ensure that our focus with our grantees is right. And out of that came a request that we develop more product or support around mental management, mental resilience. And I thought, oh, well, that's a great idea. Let's get some, let's get a box of, um, tools that we can roll out to our grantees that'll help them when they hit a roadblock or stumble. Because with the Inspire Foundation, we are really focused on developing future leaders. So we're, we support talent. And we believe that that talent will solve the problems of people more in need. So that's always been our, if you like, you know, we're upstream, top of the cliff. Those are the uh, people we focus on. And then when it comes to mental resilience, we thought, well, if we had some tools we could use to teach and train them, that would make them more resilient, better leaders when they do hit a roadblock, whether it's an injury or an emotional event or they're overseas or something goes wrong, they miss out, don't win the gold, don't win anything. You know, all those sort of challenges, we thought we'll upskill them. And then as we got into it, we met with Gilbert and he said, put a team of really bright people together. Let's figure out what three things can be done. And to our interest, dismay, they said, well, you're wasting your time because people in need won't look up apps and they won't go online. They don't Google. What they do do is reach out to somebody. So the, the learning has been we need to develop a mentorship program for our grantees. In fact, I think every young person needs a mentor. So our bigger, bigger goal is to create a model that could be rolled out to New Zealanders and Australians or anybody wanted it that encouraged more mentors, gave them an understanding of what the responsibilities are, and gave them some tools that they could use with young people. Because as a father and a mother dealing with your own children, you're never really a prophet in your own land. At a certain stage, your children will say, yeah, 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 you don't know anything. But they'll listen to a mentor who may well say similar or the same things, but they have a deeper input. So teenage suicide in New Zealand, Australia, down under, is at epidemically high rates. I've been told it's as, as bad as one in three young people in our same grantee target market take their life in New Zealand every three days. That's horrific. And while that's not our focus, maybe if we invest our time and energy into developing resilience 
tools that mentors and parents and future grantees can use, then we can do something about that major disaster in here. So that, like I've been really focused on that. I've read a lot, listened to podcasts. I've been talking to some really, really smart people. I've met with school counsellors and principals, psychologists. Like it's a major challenge for us. You know, a lot of young people are judging their self-worth and and um, their self-esteem in terms of the number of ticks they get on Facebook or the number of reposts. I mean, I wouldn't do that because, you know, that's not me. <laughs> but, you know, that's where we're at. That's the world we're in. I'm finding that a really interesting challenge. And my goal would be to have, we've got, I've got somebody, I've <laughs> practiced what I preach. We've done a plan. We've got some talented people now in charge of developing the mentorship program and the mental resilience program. We've got a launch date which, you know, there's nothing like setting a deadline to make sure everything gets done. And we will have a toolbox of really good, I suppose, educative materials that we can use. And hopefully we'll get our grantees on board and they can go out to schools and share their story and some of these insights in terms of resilience to help others uh, down the track who, you know, when we do you know, have a major setback, it'd be quite useful if you had someone in your camp you could go to. So that's, that's, a, that's, a, major, that's a major focus at the moment. Um, we are continually growing Harcourts. We've just appointed a whole heap of new board members. We're in the process of restructuring and bringing some new talent into our heads of department. We're still focused in Canada and the United States in terms of growth while we enhance the offering here. We've rolled out a customer experience program in New Zealand, Australia, the States and South Africa. And that's been a really interesting challenge where we ask our clients, would they return and recommend us? We're surveying every single one and then giving the feedback. And then the goal is to put that feedback up online so it keeps everybody honest, which is, you know, living our values, yeah, but quite challenging. Isn't it? I just want to go back to the, to, the, to the mental thing you touched on a little bit. If someone is listening and they are looking for a mentor in some way, whether it's uh, in a business, whether it's um, to increase performance, whether it's just someone to chat with, have you got any advice on how they might find someone, whether it's, you know, is it, is it 30 seconds of courage to ring someone? Is it, um, you know, who could that person possibly be? Is there any light you could shed on that? Yeah, well, uh, what I've found about mentorship is that the mentor does not need to be an expert in your field. The mentor just has to have some wisdom and have some interest in you and probably the courage to ask you some accountable questions when it's appropriate. You just need someone in your corner that, you know, you respect enough to listen. That's it. Like it's not, I, I thought it was, well, you know, they've got to be a world-class this and they've got to run businesses to be a mentor. They've got to run, you know, being an ex-Olympian. Nah, no, it's just a person with some wisdom who's prepared to meet with you up to an hour a month or, an, or maybe an hour a week, sometimes an hour a fortnight to touch base and make sure you stay on track build a relationship with you. So yeah, practice 20 seconds of courage. Think of all the people you know, ring a few, go and have a cup of coffee with them and just feel them out because you have to be comfortable that they're the mentor that you want. But there is no criteria and there's no, you don't want a university professor, 
You don't want somebody who's at the top of the hill in terms of business. You just want someone who's smart enough to show some interest in you. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, yeah, it could be any field. And from the sounds of it, the, the research that you're looking into anyway, that, that almost everyone should have a mentor, at least young people anyway. People who are really, really in need, the ones who are really downstream of are suffering intense anxiety, the, the things that I'm reading about and I'm seeing that get them through is having a relationship with somebody outside the family circle. You know, the family's got to be in touch and, you know, the parents have got to be on board, et cetera, et cetera. But having a, an external mentor who doesn't have an agenda. You know, I was talking with a, a counsellor from one of our top schools here in Christchurch and he said, everybody's got an agenda. The coach has got an agenda. The parents have got an agenda. The teacher's got an agenda. Everybody's an agenda. The reason you get a mentor is you get someone sensible who doesn't have an agenda. All they want is for you to be successful, happy, prosperous, you know, a, a good human being, that's what you get a mentor for. Somebody smart who hasn't got an agenda. Yeah, that's clever. That's just relationships again, I guess. Isn't yeah, it, it is it relationships. A, yeah. a reoccurring theme. That's us. I really appreciate your time. Is there any questions you want to leave anyone with? Any comments, books you'd recommend, advice, statements, quotes you like? Anything that anyone that's listening could, could finish on? Thoughts determine what you want. Actions determine what you get. Steve Brown, I think we picked that up 35 years ago. It's never gone out of my mind. Thoughts determine what you want. Actions determine what you get. So you can sit there, you can listen to this conversation, and you can think, yeah, there's some great ideas, but unless you take some action, nothing will change. What a perfect way to end it. Paul, I love you. I appreciate you. Thank you for being on the podcast. Welcome. There it is. That's the podcast. Thank you so much to Paul Wright for being my guest today. But most importantly, thank you so much to you for listening. I really, hand on heart, appreciate you being here. It means the world to me. If you want to reach out, I'm Matty Lovell on both Instagram and Facebook. This podcast, I want it to be the best it can be for you. If you've got any ideas, suggestions, people you'd like to hear interviews from, then please let me know. If there is one thing I could ask you to do, if this episode brought you any value at all, or you think it may be of value to anyone you know, then please share this episode again. That would really mean the world to me. Thank you so much for listening. Have a lovely day, and I'll talk to you soon.